Blog Talk Radio. Well, that was a familiar sound for all of us House of Cards, and it was an indicative of the show that we're going to have tonight because with us I have the distinct privilege of having Joe Steffen, who is a politico, a communications expert, a Republican operative, an author, blogger, father, and a good friend. And like I said in the briefing, Joe Steffen carries – Many distinct titles, but I don't think that there is any more interesting title than the Prince of Darkness. And Joe, Joe is welcome. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on this evening. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my huh. friend, very much. And again, who do I send a check to for that introduction? Oh well, maybe my maybe my high school English teacher because she taught me how to write well. <laughs> well, and she did a remarkable job. I will say that. Well, I appreciate that, Joe. Very well. It, very well. It's it's really a pleasure to have you. Um, and we've we've talked about doing this show for some time now. And uh, yes, we I have. Just got, yes, we have. Yeah, I mean, I I just got started in this, and it's fun, and it's really engaging. And we, you know, I try to do issue centric ish ideas and topics, and um, it's really taken off. And I think that you know, I like to talk. And it's just a really conversational uh, type of atmosphere for us to really dive into Maryland politics and find out what's going on. Did you on. just do and, a podcast with John Cluster? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I called him and we uh, Yeah, we I, I, I called part of that. Yeah, we talked about – that he's was a, about HB 28. He's a good guy. Very good yeah, guy. Yeah, he's a Very good smart. guy. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you talk a little bit about who Joe Stefan is, your bio, and – for people that are listening that may not know you or anything about you, there has been a mystique that has evolved and developed a around mystique. you. <laughs> developed around your president. So my idea of this show, Joe, and to the listeners out there, that I want people to have a better window into who you are because people find you very interesting, very uh engaging and and someone that draws a lot of unique attention. So, Joe, take it away and talk about you. Me. Okay, well, first of all, my mystique, if you want to call it that, is very <laughs> well cultivated. Um, but technically, I tend just to be a guy in my mid-50s having fun, loving life. Now, and that might sound very cliched to a lot of people, but it's not. You know me fairly well. It's not cliched whatsoever. Um, my background, my bio, was that after I graduated from high school, I bounced around odd job to odd job, ended up working at the National Conservative Political Action Committee based upon something I wrote for the old Town Community Times. They got a clip of it. The chairman loved it, called me in for an interview. Next thing you know, I'm the press secretary of the largest political action committee in the world. I'm 23 wow. years old. I'm thinking life gets no better. And then through that, I worked in politics in Virginia for a few years. And um, I was at Nick Pack for probably two and a half to three years, the conservative pack. Worked in Virginia politics, did a couple of campaigns down there, moved back up to Maryland, which is where I'm from. 
um, worked for Linda Chavez when she ran against whatever that midget's name is, Mikulski in 86. <laughs> and um, then, yeah, I hooked up with Bob Ehrlich in 90, no, 86, the same year Mikulski ran against Chavez. I asked the year I met Bob Ehrlich, going, and he was going door to door, knocking door in my neighborhood. And um, I did some stuff for him <clears throat> behind the scenes. I was actually uh, working for Linda and leaking information to Bob Ehrlich's delegate race because Bob was challenging a, slit- a sitting Republican slate, Ellen Sabre, Tom Chamberlain, and Wade Koch. So I'm leaking information to Bob, and I, can, I know Ellen's wondering how the hell is this guy finding out everywhere we're going to be. And I could have raised my hand and said, Ellen, I'm responsible, but I did not. And um, so Bob just started showing up everything. He won his delegate race by like 25 to 30 votes in the primary. And the rest is history for him. He ran for Congress in 94 and 1. He ran for governor in 02 and 1. Of course, they ran for governor in 06 and 010 and lost. And in 2010, he got his doors blown off. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I've just been around ever since, ever since then. And yeah, I'm you're not a, going anywhere anytime real soon. Well, that's good. You're a legend in Maryland politics. So what what began this adventure into politics? How did you become so drawn to it? And we all know that you are a very talented person. You you are a great writer. You're a thinker. You're clearly involved with the conservative movement in the state of Maryland. So what got you drawn and what got you to really embrace politics? Honestly, the, the easy answer is Ronald Reagan in 1980. I was a huge Reagan fan, but he wasn't even my first choice. My first choice was the late mm-hmm. congressman from Illinois, Phil Crane, was running for president for like six or seven months. And as soon as Reagan got in, Crane bowed out because he knew he wasn't going to be Reagan for the conservative vote in the Republican primary in 80. So between Phil Crane and Ronald Reagan, that's what drew me into it. Um, I'd always had a fascination with it when I was younger, going back to Watergate, Nixon in 74 when he resigned. Mm. And um, I was like 15 or 15 at that time. Um, He resigned. But then I just kind of kept my uh, ears and eyes on it to a degree. And honestly, and everyone's going to throw brickbats at me now, I kind of was a Jimmy Carter fan in 76. Oh, you done I think it. the southern drawl, uh, the southern drawl, did it for for me. He was the he was the peanut farmer. Exactly, but in 1978, the Panama Canal treaties went up, and Phil Crane led the fight against the Panama Canal Treaty giveaway, which is really what pulled me in. And I remember thinking, well, I got I like this guy Crane a lot, and Jimmy Carter, you were as wrong as wrong can be, and that's where I flipped was on Panama Canal Treaties. Um, so, yeah, but ever since then, I swear to God, I've just never looked back. It's been, what, 37 years or so now? Yeah, this is 2015. So um, it's been a long time, and but I love it. Now, I have a different viewpoint of it now, having been involved in some high-level and some high-risk gambits and stuff like that, but... Um, I still love it a lot, and it's in my blood to the point it will never be gone, not entirely. And I'm sorry for all the people I've pissed off by saying that, but that's the way it is. Well, there's a lot of people that want to understand that you're an operative. And people that aren't in politics, they don't exactly know what an operative means. And, you know, it it could mean so many different things, but 
I have my definition. I'm sure you have your definition. But in politics, people are involved with the parties. They're involved with candidates, and they develop this kind of operative type of gig that is sort of without a job title. So talk about that, Joe. Being an operative? Well, let me put it to you this way. Um, And I want to just use this as an allegory for a second, if I may. The whole deflate gate stuff floating around the New England Patriots right now. There are a lot of theories as to what happened. My theory is the same as Boomer Esiason's. The, The guy from the cult intercepts Brady. That's the one ball that is so underinflated it's ridiculous because I think the Colts deflated that ball. Someone on the Colts was an operative. He had something, he saw an opportunity, and he pounced on it to destroy or embarrass the other side. That's the type of operative I always was. If I could find that one thing that could really destroy or hurt the other side, I would exploit it to the nth degree. Now, operative can also be someone who just goes door-to-door with candidates. It can be someone who does all the more rosy, sunny-side-up type politics. But there wasn't a lot of people in the Republican Party who would go the other way and do the nastier or more questionable things. And I never had any problem with doing that kind of stuff, ever. Yeah, I love it. It's like you're the – I mean you're the the Frank Underwood that we all want to be because you've done it. But it really kind of started – the operative – type of style of politics. Wasn't it back like uh, with Lee Atwater? I loved Lee Atwater. I thought the man was a demigod as far (laughs) as the way he did things. And I worked at Nick Pack, by the way, with Terry Dolan, who was a close friend of Atwater's. Right. And Atwater was almost going to be one of the founders of Nick Pack. The other founders were Dolan Roger Stone and Charlie Black. Now, Stone and Black, so they're off doing their own thing now. Dolan's been dead for years. But, um, yeah, Atwater was a hero of mine because he was working in the Reagan White House in 1982, the year I started at NICPAC, and we had people on staff who were friendly with him and who had contact with him on and off. And Lee Atwater, yeah, he was basically wrote the book on the current way to do things. Yeah, he did. He or was, was the current a- way. He definitely wrote the the book about how to do things behind the scenes, and that was that was how he was defined. And he has since passed. He died very young, and he was yes, one he of my. Yeah, I love politics. I'm I love helping candidates. And um, Joe, I think that you're willing to do many of the unsavory things that people claim they don't like about politics, but it's more of the sexy aspect of politics because that's what we that's what we all think of and you said earlier to this evening that you are willing to take something to get take something pull it apart and use it to exploit the opponent and you know what to people that are listening and they think well that's not how politics work well you know what stop it that's how politics works. That's exactly how politics work. We may hate you're, it. Ryan, you're right. That's exactly how politics works. The real stuff, the real stuff that goes on in campaigns is never seen. Right. No one has any idea unless they are part of it. I have probably, when I got blown up, I probably have 25, 50 friends. I'm just top of my head now. 
that were scared to death that I might turn on them. I refused to do it because, A, some of them are still involved, and, B, I didn't know what was going to happen to me legally. I had no clue, and I did not want to drag anyone I was in the trenches fighting with down with me if I was to face that type of consequence, which I never did because they never had anything. They never had anything right. um, that they could really tie to me, but not that would affect me in a legal sense. But, um, geez, the other thing is, I can't even go into it tonight with you, I'm sorry, but some of the stuff that went down that is not to this day known about would shock certain people, and some of it's not even that bad. It's just that they refuse to understand or believe or admit that this type of stuff goes on. It does. And you know and it, as well. it goes on all the time. I see it all the time. We've all Campaigns are, are made by the people that find out information and use it to exploit their opponent. And I hate to tell people, that's just how campaigns are run. You use information exactly. to your benefit to elevate your own candidate. You keep them in the and the clear spotlight of being the the face of the campaign, the public relations battle. But behind the scenes, there is a flurry of activity happening that nobody can even conceive of and that nobody may ever know of. And that's where You're people right. like you come in. You're absolutely right. Um, now, to hit, now, I want to be very fair to Bob Ehrlich here. He did not know. 99.5% of what went on. He never, to this day, he doesn't know it. And if I have any say in the matter, I will take that stuff to my grave, not to protect me, to protect him, because he has no clue. None. He has, he's totally oblivious to it. And you might say, well, he's an idiot for not knowing, or you might say maybe he had some ideas. Well, maybe he did have some ideas. That I don't know because we just never discussed it. You never pull the candidate into it, ever. You don't. And I Plausible want to deniability, about, my friend. Absolutely. Plausible deniability. And I want to talk about your early years. You said that you had met uh, Bob and started working with Bob for his congressional campaign back in 1994. Well, in 1994, right, he decided he was going to run against – um a run for the open seat because Helen Bentley was running for governor. Right. Against Ellen Sowerberry in the primary. And that didn't go well. Yeah, not for Helen. It did not. I remember <laughs> the whole ding-dong, the witch is dead thing they had outside of <laughs> Ellen's, or Helen's campaign office. Um, I was not part of that. But, uh, yeah, Bob was running, and I heard it. I can't remember how I heard it, but I called him, and I chewed him out just very briefly saying, I've been telling you for the last two years when you step up, let me know. And he said, Joe, it just came so suddenly because she just announced I had no clue she was going to announce she was running for governor, and I wanted to jump in before anyone else did, which he did. Um, so the next night he had like a stop here, one of those like whistle tour stops throughout the district. And I met him up at this Minix restaurant in Dundalk owned by the Sonny Minnick family. Sonny's a former Democrat delegate out here in Dundalk. And, um, yeah, it, it, from that point, it just kind of took off. But I was never on a campaign payroll, but I was even then just doing some stuff that no one talks about. Bob didn't know. Um, and he won, and he won rather handily beating Gary Brewster. Gary was a very articulate 
not a left-wing nut Democrat. He was very moderate, slightly left maybe, but not a nut. We had people taping Gary at different speeches he <laughs> gave. We had set up questions to make him get embarrassed. Uh, I know the one question, and I'm running a mini tape recorder. The one person asked Gary this question I'd written up. Gary stumbles through the answer, as I knew he would. We then transcribe the tape, and we put that out to everyone that was caring to see it, what Gary said about this one issue. And honestly, right now, I can't even remember what the issue is, but it has been 21 years. Um, and it cost him a lot, a lot of I think it was something to do with, shoot, I don't remember, but somehow it really affected him with the um, church vote. Right. I do remember that, but I don't remember the issue whatsoever. Well, let me ask you, Joe, what um, drew you, what drew you to to this candidate, Bob Ehrlich? He was he was just a common guy that worked his way up through the rungs of Maryland politics as in the Maryland General Assembly, and then decided to run for Congress. And Bob Ehrlich today, well, we'll get to that later. We'll talk about some of the relation your, your relationship with Bob, but. What what really initially drew you to Bob's candidacy? Well, when he knocked on the door, going door to door, when he was running for the House of Delegates, he was just very impressive in his approach. And he knocked, and he says, hi, my name is Bob Ehrlich. And I said, I know who you are. And he looked at me like, you do? I said, yeah, I work for Linda Chavez, and that was – I don't remember if I invited him in for coffee or whatever, but we ended up talking at the door for probably five or ten minutes, and – I genuinely, genuinely liked him. And from that point on, as I mentioned earlier, I started helping him win his delegate race where I could. And then when he ran for Congress, but I always kept my eye on him because I knew someday he was going to go places. I just knew it. I could feel it. And to, for lack of a better term, I wanted to be part of the ride. Yeah. So um, when he did run for Congress, that's what I did. Yeah, people attach um, themselves. We attach ourselves to perceived winners. And if you have the stuff, it's kind of like Dan Bongino. He has the stuff, and people jumped aboard that train quickly. Dan is an interesting guy. I love Dan Bongino to death. I mean that. I really do. Um, he's been dealt a rough hand, though, both by the Maryland Republican Party and the whole redistricting where they got rid of Roscoe Bartlett, right. that did not help him when he ran against Delaney. And he damn near won that seat anyway. A couple thousand Dan votes. Dan is a really interesting guy. I'm very upset he did not get the nomination for Maryland State Police, although I get or the appointment for that. I'm sorry. But I, I catch so much crap because everyone says, oh, Dan's so much bigger than that. He's so much better than that. Um, in fact, I even wrote a blog about it. Well, he, he should did. be the MSP chair or MSP chief. But um, I was a little disgusted yesterday when I heard that Governor Hogan appointed this guy, Pelosi, Palazzi, whatever his name is. Right. Because, But not because I'm anti him. I don't know anything about him. But because I was really hoping we'd go to Dan Bongino. Well, let me ask yeah, you but this, you're Joe. Right. He, he, mm-hmm. yeah, you, so you, when you got involved with Bob's campaign in 1994, he won. So then. You worked for Bob for the next eight years, is that right? In as a congr- as within his congressional office. Well, I was a congressional aide for eight years, but um, and then he ran for governor and won. And the little known fact is, even though I was blown up after he was governor in February two thousand five, I had already decided 
before that. You know, if Bob wins again, I don't know if I'm going to go with him for a second term because the bureaucracy was tying me down, and I hate bureaucracy. I hate it. It's the worst. So um, it's horrible. It's horrible. And I was working at the time I got nailed by – for Al Redmer at the Insurance Administration. Al's a great guy. I know I've known Al since like '86. Met him on the Chavez campaign. He is truly a very good guy, and I'm so happy he's back as the administrator of the MIA or the secretary or whatever they call that card, the commissioner. Sorry, Al. But um, he is truly a great guy, and I can't imagine the MIA, the Insurance Administration, being in any better hands. He knows insurance unbelievably well, and um, He's sold it his whole life. He's retired, as far as I know from it. He's made his money off of it, but he knows it inside out and upside down. So, yeah, but when I got nailed by in that year, I was already thinking, I don't know if I'm coming back. I want because you to. Um, I was getting. Yeah, go, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. I was just getting bored with the whole bureaucracy bit. Bored of tears, well, actually. I want you to unwind for us the 2002 early campaign. Many people thought it was a fluke. Some people said that it was Bob's time, and some people claimed that KKT Kathleen Kennedy Townsend was just an abysmal candidate that really had no business running for governor. I know she was the former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland, and that's just what lieutenant governors do. But was Bob's first election as Maryland's governor, or his only election, was that a fluke? I won't go out as far as to call it an out-and-out fluke. I will say, though, I remember talking to Bob in his Lutherville office, congressional office one day, around lunchtime or whatever. I think we were eating lunch, actually, at his desk. There were like three or four of us in there. And he said something about he could handle losing, but he could not handle getting destroyed in a race. He said his ego would not allow that. And I said, well, that's going to depend on whether it's just you and Kathleen Townsend or if it's going to, if O'Malley, who was then the mayor of Baltimore, gets in the race, you might have a problem. And he admitted, yeah, I might have a problem then. But we kind of figured he could destroy Kathleen. Um, he didn't destroy her. He beat her by four and a half, five points or whatever. But um, I won't go so far as to call it an out-and-out fluke because Maryland is two-to-one Democrat registration or whatever. And it's changed over the years. In fact, I think it's gotten a little worse. Mm-hmm. But um, – Bob did run to to the book. He did what a good candidate should do. He showed up at the office, he got his schedule for the day, and he went about and did his stuff. Now, I was not in all the upper echelon decision-making on that. That was guys like Chip DePaula, Paul Shurek, and a couple others were. But I just knew what I saw. Bob ran that campaign the right way, the way he needed to do it. And, it, and there were some similarities with the way Hogan ran his winning campaign in 14. But when I saw Larry Hogan at the diner, one of the, on his thank you tour, I shook his hand and told him, Larry, you ran the best campaign I've ever seen, which was an honest that he did. Nothing broke out of that campaign. There were no leaks. There were nothing. Bob Ehrlich ran probably the second best campaign I've ever seen in 02. But we were doing our stuff behind the scenes in that one too. And, um, so I'm not going to say it was an out-and-out fluke, but it was a lot more fluke-ish than was Hogan's win over Anthony Brown. I will say that. 
Well, that, that answers my question. Now, there was a question of how you first got into the administration, that who brought you in? Did Bob really bring you in? What was What's the story behind that? What, the Ehrlich governorship? Right, when, you, when he became governor and how you became part of the administration. Well, I was always on his transition team. I was a paid member of his transition team, which is where I got to know Larry Hogan. Because Larry's desk and mine basically abutted heads. Um, and from what I can remember now, it was always just assumed. And I remember Steve Krasewski, his former chief of staff, coming to me and asking me if I had any particular type of role or job I wanted in the Ehrlich administration, something along those lines anyway. And I said no. And he says, I was nothing, no one thing I wanted to do anything more, anything less than any other job. So um, he said, all right, we'll get you something. And it was just like, a, don't worry, Joe, you'll be taken care of. We've got it. Right. And they did. They picked me up like with, and I never had to worry about another thing. But yeah, I don't know who, I'd never heard there was a question about that, but I'll take your word for it. Well, I was just reading the Baltimore Sun and I was looking at the February 10th, 2005 article where uh, they, it had like, Five writers that had to do, like did one uh, piece on you, and it was I think it was very fair what what the Sun did coming from the Sun that is, um, and they talked about your your background, and I have to say um, I, I I can appreciate that you're from Reisterstown, Franklin High, as you know my better half Kim she she's a graduate there. Um, I, think I a few do years. know that. I hope she's doing <laughs> wonderfully. By the way, that's right. Um, so then I want to get into the crux of our. Our interview, you you became part of the Ehrlich administration, and somehow you got this nickname, this moniker. You were called the Prince of Darkness. Can you tell me how how that came about? There was one time when Bob was still running for Congress. I can't remember if it was 96 or 98. He had a meeting, a campaign meeting, I think it was the day before Election Day, down in the basement of a Lutherville campaign office. And it, I, whatever type of meeting was supposed to start at 8 o'clock. I got there like half an hour later. I was wearing a suit. I walked downstairs. He says, oh, well, the Prince of Darkness has arrived. He's the guy that gave it to me. Bob Ehrlich nicknamed me the Prince of Darkness. It was either 96, 98. might have even been 2000. I don't remember. Somewhere in the late 90s, 2000. And I never asked him why he called me that. He never told me why he called me that, but he called me that before he was even a go- ran for governor. So when I met with Matt Mosk, the Washington Post reporter, who wrote the story blowing me up, he asked me if anyone knew me as any, and I said, well, they call me the Prince of Darkness, and that's how I said it. And, of course, then it just took off. <laughs> now, um, the other thing is, the, just so you know this, I just want to get this on the record now, when the Baltimore Sun did their story, they had been calling me. When I got home from work that day, my, my, voice, my voicemail, this is back with the old like, phone that had voicemail on them, answering machines. My answering right. machine had like 57 messages. 57. I started listening to them. Most of them were friends wishing me well because they just read the Washington Post story online. One was from some reporter with the Baltimore Sun. And I called her back because there was no way in hell – 
I was going to give the Washington Post a scoop on this. They set me up. They were part of the setup. Matt Mosk was part of the setup. I'm like, well, God damn, they're certainly not going to get a scoop. So I called the Baltimore Sun and told them everything they wanted to know just to take Mosk and the Post scoop away from them. And that's that story you were just referring to. So they people but have said, is, that, yeah, people have said that you were almost a henchman, the axer that walked through the halls of the governor's uh, or the, the the executive branch or below and beneath the surface of the state capitol and throughout the government buildings in Annapolis. That you wore this trench coat and you would just randomly uh, and indiscriminately fire people. Is there any truth of that? Is that I just had all? No I had no authority to fire anybody. What I did do, and yeah, honestly, I had a trench coat. But I had one long before the whole trench coat mafia crap went down in Columbine. Well, that and was the 90s, though. Everybody was, had trench coats. Yeah, exactly. And, well, you know I me, mean, I'm not that much up on fashion. And I wore it when it was bad weather, raining and cold. And I would not wear the trench coat when I walked through the offices. I'd wear it to the office. I'd take it off, hang it up. But um, part of my later, my latter job description, because initially I started out working in the governor's finance office, talk about a boring job, hmm. and um, then probably a year into it, I said, look, this is goddess. Because I was already considering then one year in of like, I am not doing this forever. I am not going to work here forever doing accounting for the governor's office. I'm just not going to do it. So um, – I can't remember who – I might have talked to Chris Sesky, Steve Krasesky. I might have talked to Paul Shurek, whoever I talked to. Though so it was like, all right, well, how about we send you over to Health and Human Service or whatever? How about we send you over to this agency? How about we – and then I wasn't dealing with Larry Hogan outside of we would meet like once a week or so, once every two weeks, as much as I was with Diane Baker, one of his aides. And they would ask me, well, who do you think – we, where, do you, where do you think we might be able to make some moves, meaning personnel moves? Right. So, yeah, I gave them names on occasion, but that happens in every single administration. And if Larry Hogan is not doing that right now with people, he's wrong. He, I'm, he's just wrong. You better believe when O'Malley took over for Ehrlich in 06 or 07, he did it. Because he had all these Republicans Martin O'Malley hated, he wanted out. I'm sure, I guarantee you he did that. Um, the issue was, when I was blown up, they tried to tie me to talking about the whole O'Malley rumors and Charday Badernois, whatever her name was, the old Channel 11 reporter that used to be here. And they, they tried to suck me into conversations on the Free Republic website. I was writing as Nick Pack. Someone knew that. I don't know... Well, I think I know who. I'm not going to get into who right now. Someone knew that, so they thought they set me up. But if you read anything I wrote, I had said repeatedly, attack O'Malley, but leave his personal life alone. But when I got nailed, none of that shit mattered. And it's there in black and white. I could send it to you after the show if you want to see it. Well, I am literally writing saying, do not go into his personal life at all. So, yeah, I mean, the rumors are that you were sacked from the administration because you had apparently spread this this nefarious rumor about Martin O'Malley's personal life, that he was having some type of affair. 
Uh, where did these rumors begin circulating? I think they started circulating when O'Malley was governor among Democrats on the council in the city. And Bob, I think the first place – huh? Did Bob have any knowledge of this? No. Okay. None. None. Um, he might have heard the rumor, but he had no knowledge of what was going with me getting pulled in. Of course, until I got blown up, I had no knowledge about getting pulled in. You can read everything I ever wrote. Do not talk about his personal life. It's to this day, and I know Free Republic keeps the records. It's there. It's there to this day. Um, what I wrote, but no one in the media gave a damn. They were onto something juicy, so they ran with it. Um, well, that's typically, and well, that's typically honestly, how stories operate. Exactly, but it's like you know, it got to the point back then. I'm thinking. I could fight this. I could scream innocent until the cows came home. No one is going to listen. No one is going to just believe me. So I didn't. It's like, you know, how many people have already convicted in New England Patriots for Deflategate? Everyone I know except for maybe two people. Well, you lose in court of public opinion. What happens if they're innocent? No one's going to care. The story will then just go away. No one's going to apologize. No one's going to care if they're innocent. Um, but you got, you got blamed, though. I mean, you, you, you really took a lot of heat. And when you – so can you tell me what had happened? Um, did did you – did Bob have to fire you? Or I don't want to say fire. I don't know how you would describe it. I resigned that night. I resigned that night. You You resigned, but – were you going to be pushed out by the administration? I don't know. Well, I think so, because what happened was after Matt Mosk left, after he interviewed me, I called and talked with Paul Shurek. And Paul, I told Paul what went down, and Paul was like, oh, geez. I said, Paul, I will offer to write my resignation letter right now. Because even though I knew I didn't do it, I know, that, like we just talked about, I know the way these stories work. And Paul said, no, don't do that. I'm going to call the governor. So Shurik called Ehrlich, wherever Ehrlich was out and about doing something. He was not in Annapolis that night. So Paul called me back probably 15, 20 minutes later and said, hey, Joe, Bob said, quote, don't worry about anything. You'll be taken care of. But, yeah, he, he thinks he might need your resignation letter. So I wrote a resignation letter. I faxed it to Paul that night. The next, I went and I told Al Redmer what had happened. Al was still at his desk. And I said, I'll be back tomorrow to clean my desk out. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I was not walked out. I was not pushed out. But, yeah, your question being, do I think they might have forced me out? I think they might have. Because, not thinking necessarily that I did it, but just that you know, we know the way this type of crap goes down, and I didn't blame them in the least for doing that. How I to do it? And well, when I first offered, I was told, "Don't, no, not yet. We don't want you to do that yet." You know, it's like when these rumors start to fly, and when tangible information starts to be disseminated into the public. What people have to understand in politics is that anybody who works for a figure like a congressman. A United States senator, or in this case, a governor, the aide mm-hmm. invariably takes the fall all the time, Every and that's why people time. are there. Every time, 
So, yeah, and I, you know, Joe. The only thing that does piss me off, if I may add this though, is that please keep going. Then don't, Paul Shurek, do not guarantee slash promise me. Don't worry about a thing unless you plan on backing that up. What? And they never, they never did jack shit. And and that's we're going to lead into the next portion of our conversation. What? What is your relationship now with Bob Ehrlich? I have not talked to Bob Ehrlich since then. And in fact, every now and then, I've even... And I say it jokingly, Ryan. You know my sense of humor. Oh, sure. I say, people ask me, why don't you talk to Bob Ehrlich anymore? And I say, A, I don't think he'd talk to me. But B, I don't like the slum. Yeah. And people are like, oh, damn. Did you just say... Yeah, I just said that. Because, seriously, I like Bob. I still like Bob, all in all. But the guy's got no spine. There's no spine there. There's nothing there. I don't know how he keeps standing up. And now, right now, he seems like he's going off the deep end by toying with the idea of running for president. You lost in 06. You got destroyed in 2010. Why are you doing it right? I think here's why I think he might be running for president right now is because he can't handle the fact that Larry Hogan, who used to work for him, just got elected governor six months after Bob Ehrlich's telling everyone, we'll never elect another Republican governor. Well, guess what? We just did. So that bothers Bob. The other thing that bothers Bob, I think, anyway, and this is just me talking. Let me stress that. This is just Joe Stefan talking. The other thing I think that bothers Bob is the fact that he can't handle not being the top Republican in the state of Maryland. His ego is such he just cannot accept that. And the third thing is I think Kendall wants him to do it with his wife. <laughs> now, Kendall, a, and, a, yeah. Kendall can charm you out of your shoes if you let her. But if you see her other side, it's like, oh, my, you've got to keep an eye on her at the same time. Because she, she can be one of the most charming people in history. But you have to keep an eye on her. It's it's a soap and opera, I, it seems like. Well, yeah, and I kind of feel for people like, well, how much you hate, but I don't hate him. If anything, I kind of feel sorry for him. It's like he's stuck in that moment of, I wish I was still governor. Well, Bob, I'm sure you do. I'm sure everyone who's achieved that still wishes they were it. But... um. The fact is, you ran twice, and lo- and his big mistake was not running in 06 for re-election. His big mistake was running for governor again in 2010. That's what I was going to bring and up which, next. Yeah, he lost like 58 to 40, 16-point loss. It was bad, and he even got challenged in the primary by uh, a young Ryan and Murphy, by, yep. yeah, a young and successful uh, business person. And in full disclosure, I did support Brian Murphy in the primary in 2010. So I really like Brian. I met with Brian uh, for the first time. Uh, he had um, come up to Washington County, and we're talking about a young guy that's never been into politics. It was his first foray into the, 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 the snake pit of Maryland, and my goodness, the party tore him up. They just completely dismissed Brian Murphy. I mean, it, was, it looked like he was like a cancer because, oh my goodness, somebody ran against Bob. Bob Ehrlich, it was like the doomsday. Absolutely. And I I was a um, 
I did what you did. I met with Brian, and I liked him. And as soon as I said I was backing him, people were like, wow, you must really hate Bob. No, this has nothing to do with Bob Ehrlich and my personal feelings for him. What this has to do with is the fact that Bob Ehrlich lost once, and Murphy is a fresh face, and I'm just not tied to Bob Ehrlich anymore. It's not that I hate, but there's a difference between not being tied to someone and hating them. And I've never hated Bob. I don't hate anyone. Good Lord. But um, I like Brian a lot, too. And Brian, honestly, was more in tune with my politics than Bob ever was. <laughs> Bob, you can say what he wants. He has a libertarian side to him. Bob Ehrlich does. But he tends to be such a moderate mush because he doesn't like confrontation whatsoever. Murphy would have confronted people. He would have. And Larry Hogan, that's one of the things I like about Larry now. He's showing he's not afraid to confront people. And and Murphy would have been the same, maybe different issues, but Murphy would have been the same way that Larry is approaching it, I think. You know, Joe, Bob, when I when, – yeah, I was going to say, Joe, <clears throat> when, when, when Larry became the governor-elect and right after the, the – you know, after we won in November – and there was a, a really a uh, this this attitude that yes things are going to be different and I think that they are. However, it seemed like Bob Ehrlich kept creeping back into the spotlight by his own political activities. And you said earlier in our conversation that Bob has to be the top dog. Do you think that was symptomatic of Bob's behavior? I do absolutely. Bob Ehrlich did do a lot of very good things for the Republican Party and for himself back in his time. His time is now over, period. That's the end of it. He, everyone in the state can see it. And I talk to Republicans all the time, Ryan, who tell me, I agree with you, but I can't say it because it's Bob Ehrlich. Well, what the hell? You can't say it because it's Bob Ehrlich you're talking about? Well, yeah. Everyone in the entire state, both Republican and Democrat, independent, whatever, can see his time is over other than Bob Ehrlich. Everybody can see it. Well, it's definitely – his time has definitely come full circle, and now it's the most important for all of our past uh, governors, Republican governors – you know, you see someone like Alan Sauerbrey who was really out there stumping hard for Governor Hogan, and I really uh-huh. wish that there would be a sense that Bob is out there supporting Larry. And and I think I don't I can't say because I don't know him. I don't know what's happening, but I I would like some sort of public display that Bob is truly there to help Larry succeed in his first term as governor of Maryland. Good luck. I don't know if you're going to see that. I just don't, I don't know, A, if Larry's going to ask him, and B, <laughs> if Bob would do it. Because right now, the one again, the one thing Bob Ehrlich does not just – I don't think he's capable of grasping it – is that most people, most people consider him a bit of a laughingstock. Seriously, you're going to run for president after losing the governorship twice by – by what, 250,000 votes the second time? 200 or 250,000 votes the second time, whatever it was? Are you kidding me? Well, nobody knows who and he is outside he of Maryland. Me, he told me eons ago, 
probably 20, 25 years ago, that the first time he ever loses a race, he is done. The first race he ever in his life lost was when he ran against O'Malley for re-election. And here's the other interesting thing. I just say this because I find the correlation to be interesting. I'm not taking credit for it or blame. It's also the first race in which I had absolutely nothing to do with his campaign. It was 2006. (laughs) Well, that's Um, ironic. Yeah, it is ironic. It is ironic, but I'll just leave it there. I had was involved in one degree, even sometimes minor shit like facilitating phone calls or in every race he was ever involved in until 2006. And that's the first race. But I'm thinking, being true to his word, that would be it. No, he ran again in 2010, and we saw that was a disastrous game. Uh, yeah, he, and he even lost places that he, sh- he, he dropped precipitously even in Western Maryland. I remember meeting Bob up in Hagerstown. He had come for a, a stop and, you know, look, he was still viewed very favorably. Uh, my former senator, Chris Shank, was was heavily involved with uh, the early campaign. And, you know, people, I remember, looked at me very differently because I was supporting Brian Murphy. And they said, oh, you're a Tea Party nut. No, well, hold on a second. I'm not even <laughs> close to being part. I, I want fresh. I, it's like I want something fresh. I want something different. And Brian had that. He had that edginess that is really attracts me to different candidates, and Brian just really impressed me with his depth of financial uh, – his background. And look, he was well-educated. He went to the Wharton School of Business, and I know Bob – what, I think he went to Princeton, right? Yeah, Bob had won. I don't know if he won, but I think he was there. I think he was there on a football scholarship. Right. And – Gary Brewster, who ran against him in 94 for Congress, they were basically classmates at Princeton. <laughs> George Will, the writer, you know who George Will is. Sure. In 94, came down in 1994 primary and had a fundraiser for Bill Frank, the delegate who's going to be stepping down soon, unless he hasn't right. already, um, who ran against Bob as a challenger in a primary in 94. And George Will referred to Brewster and Bob Ehrlich as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. <laughs> I know because I got into Bill Frank's fundraiser that night. And I'm hearing George Will say this crap. I'm like, oh, my God. I remember going back to Bob and saying that George Will said this about you, which did not exactly please Bob. But – um you're going to have to take Bill Frank a bit more seriously. He can have a fundraiser and have George Will show up as a keynote speaker. And there was some cabinet secretary under Reagan was there. And she, I think she said a few words too. Right now I can't remember what her name is though. Or even what agency she was a cabinet secretary. I'm like, right. oh, my. That, that room, Ryan, that room was packed and it was rocking. And Frank ended up losing to Bob in 94 primary, but like 52 to 37. It was not a blowout. Hmm. And I told Bob, I remember taking, we were all taking bets primary night what amount of the vote Bob was going to get. Everybody else was writing 75, 80, <laughs> 72. I wrote 54 to 37. It was 52 to 37. Wow. And... um 
everybody's like, well, what do you think? Bill Frank is going to buy it. I said, no, he's going to get the pro-life vote. Bob is not pro-life, but he's not really classically pro-choice. He, he um, does believe in Roe v. Wade, but no government funding of it whatsoever. Hmm. Whereas Bill Frank's like, no, I'm definitely pro-life, which he was, to his credit or blame, whatever your view on that issue is. Right. And um, Frank got all of those people out to vote and got 30, 52 to 37 was the final. The third place was some guy named John Michael Flake, who I think is in jail right now. I don't know. <laughs> but um, Flake was a cardboard cutout of a candidate. He, was, he could be funny as hell behind the microphone, but he just, you knew he was not going to win. Right, right. So, um, but Joe, we've had, a, into a race, yeah. we've had a blast to the past about your early years, and I want to bring you up to the present. Now you're currently blogging, and you're doing many different activities, and people who follow you on Facebook regularly, um, we all enjoy it because we, we love, uh, the, the it, it's, it's a constant source of information and entertainment and uh, asking questions. And Joe, I, I want to talk to you. You, you, you. you don't mince words with people, and that's what I really admire you because you're an honest person. You're upfront with people, and I think that that's why I, I admire and respect you as much as I do. There is a conservative well, online – there's a conservative online radio network in Maryland called Red Maryland, and – uh, there's founders. Are they still around? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to leave it open well, to you for for a few minutes. And I, you have kind of a – I don't want to say a feud. I, I want you to put it in your own terms. What is going on? I don't on have any feud with those guys. Look, let me just tell you. They might think that I have a feud with them, and if they do think I have a feud with them, they could not be more mistaken because if I did have a feud, with Red Maryland, meaning right now the only two that I know that are left are Brian Griffiths, also known as Little Guy, and Greg Klein. And if either one of those guys think I have a feud with them, let me really decide I'm having a feud with them. Then they'd know it. Right. Right, I'm just playing games with them. It's like batting practice. It's like <laughs> – Sharp practice, like when fencers go and fence with no tips on the blades just to get used to the idea of getting cut off or stabbed a little bit. Um, that's all it is. Red Maryland, shoot, I don't even – I was joking when I asked you, are they still around? I know they're still around. But who actually listens to them? Not just a radio show anymore. Who even reads their stuff anymore? Because they had Mark Nugent there for a long time. Right. Mark just got picked up by the Hogan administration, director, Great deputy director of policy or whatever he's doing. And Mark is a really cool guy. He was the writing talent there. He was the investigative talent there. He was also the radio talent there. When Andrew Langer left to move to Virginia, wherever the hell he's living now, that, was, that had to have hurt Red Maryland. Because Langer, as much as it might just be him pumping his own balloon – is a bit of a name. Um, Mark Nugent, when he left at Maryland to take the position with um, the Hogan administration, and I'm happy for Mark. I, actually, I think Mark did a great job. And um, 
Hogan was Hogan's not a stupid man by any stretch. He picked the guy over there who is the talent. But that leaves them with Griffiths and Klein, two of the more non-talented people. And I'm not kidding when I tell you this, Ryan, not in the least. I've been in politics since 1980, officially, 35 years. Two of the least talented people I have ever met that think they have talent are these two, Klein and Little Guy. I swear to God they are. Both of them are. They might think I hate them. I don't hate either one of them. I don't care. When I throw out my pictures of the guys wearing glasses on my Facebook page, that is in fun. It's just to, like, poke them a little bit. But if they think this is a feud, oh, my God, you guys don't want to get into a feud with me. Because neither one of you are smart enough to even know how to deal with it. I'm sorry if I sounded overly egotistical there, but you ask. No, I I, Um, I just – People find it fascinating because you, your 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 words are potent and uh, they're very palpable. But you know, we we if 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 there is ever do you ever see recon? I don't want to say reconciliation because that means that would imply that there's something else else going on. There's no feud, but. Um, you know, is there a time where you guys will ever make up and say, oh, well, you know, we'll just chalk it up to difference in personalities? I I would, well, I'm not chalking anything up because I don't have anything really against either one of them. Well, that's fair. If I ran into either one of them right now, I could go and sit and have a beer or do a shot of Jack Daniels with them and just talk like nothing had ever happened because that is how I look at it. I swear to you it is. Now, but I'm not sure they would feel the same way. I don't hate Brian Griffiths. I don't hate Ray Klein because neither one of them are even worth not even liking. They're just not worth it to me. And I swear to me, it's almost like just like, oh, yeah, it's Tuesday. Therefore, I've got to send this out. So I do it. It's that simple. <laughs> I don't put any real thought into it. I don't. And, you know, here's the thing. I think where they hated me from, let me put it to you this way. I do think they have an issue with me, and the issue is a year or year and a half ago, whenever it was, I cut and pasted an email Brian sent out to Red Maryland supporters in which he basically said we're going to use the Baltimore Sun to get readers and revenue and all that other crap. I wrote a blog piece on that, talking about conflicts of interest and all other crap. Someone at the Baltimore Sun, someone saw it, my blog piece took it to their boss, and Red Maryland was lost their contract in the blink of an eye. I think that's where their animosity toward me comes from. Right. Well, um, no one has ever said that to me. No one has ever said anything to me, but I think that's where it comes from. Well, Joe, you know, look, we uh, we have many important things as far as Republican victories. Uh, we have a few minutes left in this hour-long special, and I want to I want to get your take on politics moving forward in Maryland and uh, for the next four years. Well, I think everyone knows, or most my friends know, that I've given – who am I even say this? But I've given the Governor Hogan a bit of a pass in his first year on his budget, and I've caught crap from that for that, for doing that, from a lot of my very hardcore conservative friends saying, but he never cut this, he never did this, he never did this, he never did that. I'm like, it's his first year, give the guy some time. That's all I'm saying. 
next year, the same crap, I will help light him up with the rest of you guys. But right now, no, give him some time. And then I wrote the one piece about executive order everything because what's good for Barack Obama is good for Larry Hogan as far as I can see. Um, the four years going ahead, I think we do have to be careful, but Larry's legacy years are this year and next year, his first two years, because by the third year, if the Democrats who are in control of the legislative chambers, they will start lighting him up third and fourth year. And I'm speaking from experience on that with Bob Ehrlich. They gave Bob the first year, but the second year, even into the second session, they started like hitting him harder. And um, so I think the same thing could happen to Larry. The differences between the two, which to me is funny because Bob's the guy that had all the political experience. Larry doesn't really have any. He goes from being a businessman to a governor, like in the blink of an eye. It's great, Larry, but now how are you going to deal with these people? I think it's a valid question to ask. But I do think he's developed a good circle. He's got Steve Krim. He's got well, Nugent knows politics. He's got Getty in there. Joe Getty. He knows a lot. Of, he has a lot of people around him that know the game. If they don't all become a bunch of yes men that are going to right. say everything just to please Larry Hogan, that was Bob Ehrlich's biggest fault. He, he was, his inner circle was Paul Shurek and Greg Masoni. One of them was found guilty of doing a robocall. Yeah. without any attribution. The other one being Greg Masoni. The guy is basically a grifter. I swear to God, I like him personally, but basically he's a grifter. He brings nothing to the table as far as political knowledge goes. Nothing. Mm. Um, but they were both willing to kiss Bob's ass and say, yes, Bob, yes, Bob, no matter what Bob was saying. And I think Bob started to really like that. I'm hoping, and I think, Larry Hogan is stronger and smarter than Bob Ehrlich was in that regard. Uh, Joe, let me ask um, you a question. I, I think the next four years actually look fairly good. I think so too, Joe. Uh, we have almost a uh, little under uh, two minutes left. And i got to ask you, 2016 U.S. Senate predictions, who do you think is going to run? <sighs> Seriously, I hope it's not Dan Bongino. Um, because since he didn't get the whole MSP thing, and I love Dan dearly, I just think that would be a bit much for him after running against Cardin and then running against Delaney. I think he needs a little bit of time away from being a candidate anyway. But keep doing the podcast. Keep your name out there, Dan, the whole nine yards, because you are such a good speaker, and you're so sincere and genuine. Yeah. I think, and I don't know how you feel about him, but I think – some damage could be done by Michael Huff if he oh. decides to run. Because Huff can be seem a little stiff when you talk to him, as I'm sure you know, because you live out that way. Right. But um I the guy's smart as hell. He truly he is, is a very smart man. And the whole Havzali crap McCathy Havzali I'm sorry. <laughs> where does that woman ever even graduate third grade? I am serious. <laughs> Well, Joe, but you know what? Michael we're going to have to wrap it up here soon, but uh, right, we have 30 seconds, and I just want to thank you for agreeing to do this. And look, I, we, we oh, have so much – My pleasure, totally. Joe, this is great. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. You're a great guy. You have, you have a wealth of information, and, um, you, and uh, I, I think moving forward, 
you are going to do so many cool things. And I just want to thank you again for joining us. And all the best to you, Joe. Thank you, Ryan. You too, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. Talk to you again. Bye.